Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Amen. Let's turn to Genesis chapter 2 for our scripture or sermon text. Genesis 2, 7 and 8, and then 15 to 25. This is the word of the Lord, it is eternally true. Then the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. Skipping down to 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we think about your word that our meditations would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. Lord, bless us with wisdom. Bless us with your knowledge. May the Spirit be at work through the preaching of your word so that we might be built up and we would walk in a manner worthy of our Savior Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So why do we hit sexuality, marriage, male and female, so often? Um, Honestly, I don't think we do. So that's my first answer is it, it, uh, we don't hit it that often. At least um, <clears throat> it's an application often, but uh, thinking about the structure and the theology behind it, we don't do very often. But we should. We should do it more often because uh, we have to counteract the constant assault we receive from our society on sexuality and marriage. It's just constant. You're constantly being given sermons by our culture. And so the pulpit and the Christian church needs to, if they're going to be faithful, needs to be constantly counteracting those messages. And so um, and so that's where, where I start with. 
part also of what's motivating this sermon tonight is, uh, and, and this will really be the theme of the sermon, is Renton has been, has been talking about this at the men and family um, meetings on Sundays. He's also been at Triple B, been uh, addressing the topic of husbands and wives and men and masculinity. And he's been, he's been disciplining us men. He's been taking it to us. And I want to come alongside and be the good cop to his bad cop. So we need both, right? We need that exhortation and training and correction. We also need, um, we also need encouragement in a certain direction, and that's what I want to get to tonight. I have, I have written at the top of these notes, um, if you want to lead an exciting life, live biblically especially when it comes to sexuality, right? You will be countercultural. You will um, live out of, the, out of the, uh, the normal, and I'm talking just about in the church. If you live biblical sexuality where you believe that the man is the head of the home and the wife is a helpmate, then you've automatically just put yourself in this biblical niche that is very uncommon. And so that's the way to lead an exciting life. Everybody wants to live counterculturally. We'll do it in this direction. Okay. So Genesis chapter 2 that we just read defines marriage. It defines biblical masculinity and femininity. Uh, I'm not going to belabor this point. I'm just going to summarize what Genesis 2, 7 through 8 and 15 through 25 teach. It teaches that men are to provide and protect by saying that, by giving the command to Adam to cultivate and keep. And he is to lead. Uh, we, could, we would pull that from verse 20 of chapter 2. He is to work, and he is to love. He is to love. And the, the wife or the, the feminine are to be a helpmate, to be a companion, to be fruitful, and were given as a gift to man. Um, this is the teaching of scripture. Now, I could go through each of those points and pull them out of this passage. We've done that before. Um, I don't want to do that other than to emphasize one of those. The fact that scripture says, well, look at verse 22 of chapter 2. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and then did what? He brought her to the man, right? He he gave Adam a gift. And that gift was something that uh, was an answer to his loneliness, was an answer to the the problem that he did not have a helper corresponding to him um, as the uh, animals had had. And so so the, the woman is a gift to the man. Now, already I can, you know, that, that view um, that, man, that woman would be, in some sense, that her, her whole purpose would be derived from the fact that she was a gift to the man would be offensive to our culture, right? That the man would be, uh, that, that she would have any life in orbit to a man in any way would be offensive, OK? 
Okay, but here is scripture. And so if you want to argue, you can argue and take it up with God himself. Okay. Now there's another passage that, that teaches us that the woman was a gift to the man. And that's 1 Corinthians that we read this morning in our scripture reading. And all we have to do is read one verse of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's verse 9, which says, For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Man does not originate from woman, but woman from the man, right? He was taken from a rib of Adam, fashioned into a woman. For indeed man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Okay, now that's, that's an amazingly um, wonderful but uh, difficult to accept principle. But that is structure. God has structured male and female, and God has structured marriage in a certain way. And one of the things, men, that we've been going for in the men and family group as families are together and also in Triple uh, B, one of the things that we've been trying to emphasize is structurally one of the things that men are supposed to do is lead. You're supposed to lead spiritually your family because the responsibility is yours. Again, we could prove that in Genesis chapter 3. Eve sins first, but God comes and disciplines whom first? Adam, right? He comes and he goes to the one who is responsible, and he goes and speaks with Adam first. And so Renton's been emphasizing the fact that you men are called to lead, to lead, and often leading means saying no. It means saying no, it means saying yes, but it means making decisions, it means bearing responsibility. And we could boil that down into, because it's so wonderfully offensive, you have to say no to your wife at times. You have to lead. Leadership is often having to say no when when it's hard to do, right? And so he's been emphasizing that. I want to be... I want to emphasize something different. I want to emphasize that you have been given woman as a gift if you're married or you will be in the future if you're not married um, by God's grace, but that you are to love your wife. That part of the calling of the man is to love tenderly and affectionately his wife. Now... um, Where to go from here? I have a, a page of chaotic notes, right? Where do I take it from here? Um, <clears throat> I was going to talk more about the structure of, of biblical masculinity and femininity. Uh, those four concepts for femininity, helpmate, companion, fruitfulness, gift to the man, those are played out in, in a lot of verses in our scripture. We could go to Titus 2, and Titus 2 fits in with the Genesis 1 and 2 framework. Um, busy at home, it says. Safe place to nurture, to feed, to train children. And, um, and then Titus 2 also exhorts the woman to love her husband, to love her children. right? And so there's, a, there's a, um, an orientation for her there. But for the man, how do further passages fit the framework of Genesis 1 and 2? Um, 
that, that God has given man a gift in the woman. God made her and presented her to the man as a gift. And at that point, the man responds appropriately to such a happy gift. He sings that song. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called Eshaw. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, if, if she is a gift from God, men, how should you treat her? If she is a gift from God, how should you treat her? Yeah, there are times when you must say no. There are times when you have to lead. There are times when you have to call uh, and make a decision. Um, that as, as Abraham, it says in Genesis 18, said he commanded his household to, to follow the Lord. Right? He commanded the household. It's not like what Tim Keller says, that the husband just has tie-breaking authority. No, the, the husband has authority, and he will be held account, held to account for how he uses that authority. And the way he's to use that authority is not by being a pig, but by commanding his household to follow the Lord. Right? It is oriented not toward his own desires, but it's oriented toward the good of those that he has responsibility for. Right? So he's to love them by exhorting them to follow the Lord. Sometimes that's very difficult to do. Sometimes men are lazy and just don't want to do that work and have those conversations. But we're called to do that. But my whole point tonight is you've been given a gift in your wife and she was brought to you and presented to you. Uh, she walked down that aisle, and her father handed her off to you, um, just as God handed off Eve to Adam. And that is a gift. If she's a gift from God, how should you treat her? If you give a gift to someone, and they, they throw it in the corner and neglect it, what does that say? What does that, uh, what does that mean? Right? It means you have no respect for the gift giver. Right? You have no respect for them. How, um, or, or it may be that you dislike the gift. Right? You're just not satisfied with the gift that you've been given. But when it is made by God, that can't be the reason. Neither of those reasons. Because he is good and he gives you good gifts. Right? And so it's not like there's a fault in the gift giver or a fault in the gift. That can't be the reason. He knows what you need and who you are and what you will face. And so um, James 1.17 says, Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. So God gives good gifts, and there is no defect with God's gifts. How then can you, um, are you to honor God with that gift? How are you to honor God with the gift that he's given you or the gifts that he's given you? How are you to um, treat God's gift to you? Well, you're to provide, you're to protect, you're to lead, and you're to love. Those four things. You're to provide, you're to protect, you're to lead, and to love. And these are blessings. Calvin boiled it down to protect, govern, and cherish your wife. Protect, govern, and cherish. I would say provide, protect, lead, and love. How do you honor the gift of God that he's given to you in your wife by being a man, by being masculine, 
by fulfilling your calling as was given to you in Adam in creation. And um, part of that calling is to honor your wife by your deep love for her. To honor your wife by your deep love for her. This is not contrary or dissonant to leading her. This is not contrary to having to say no at times. To having to discipline your wife. Right? It's not contrary to that. Those are both commanded of men in marriage. Part of the calling, though, is honoring your wife by your deep love for her. And... Perhaps I should use the word affection, not just love, but you should be affectionate. Love we can make into this cosmic concept. I'm talking about being affectionate with your wife, right? Affectionate, romantic even with your wife. Uh, Ephesians 5, let's turn there for a minute. Ephesians 5, another passage that structurally defines marriage. Ephesians 5.25 says this, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, Each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. And so here in this, you're to love your wife by giving yourself up for her. You're to give yourself up to this work of loving her. You're to sanctify her, which means to wash her with the word, um, Positively, that's encouragement, um, reminding her of the promises of God. It's all of God's yeses. Negatively, it's rebuke and discipline. It's God's no's that, that are part of the, the washing of the water, washing her with the word. Um, your wife's glory or lack thereof is your fault, right? If you have responsibility and you've lacked to you've lacked in uh, washing her with the word, then her glory or lack thereof is your fault, men, husbands. Um, if, If your wife is a shrew, it's your fault. If your wife is lovely, you get credit. Okay? You get credit for both of those things. You have to wash her with the word. You are responsible for her. You are to nourish and cherish like you feed your own body, right? You want your body not to to break down, and you have to eat several times a day for that to happen. You nourish your body. And so if if you uh, believe that your uh, 
wife is failing, yes, men can make that judgment. Husbands can make that judgment. If you think your wife is failing, then, then you better get to nourishing her and providing her with the meal that's needed for her to be built up, for her to be strengthened. Um, likewise, if she is doing well, if she is lovely, if she is following the Lord, then you must encourage it and maintain it. And that also takes, as you know, constant feeding, constant returning to the word. Um, 1 Peter 3, 7, then. Let's turn there for a few things. 1 Peter 3, 7. First Peter 3, 7 says, You husbands, in the same way, like Sarah and Abraham, Sarah calling Abraham Lord, you husbands, in the same way, live with your wives in an understanding way, as with someone weaker, since she is a woman, and show her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. So we, husbands, you're called to live in an understanding way. You're living with some, someone who is weaker. She is a woman. And that takes understanding, right? That takes um, tenderness, that takes affection, that takes concerted effort, right? This, this is what, she, she is the weaker vessel, is the way it's put here. Um, she is more literally without strength, it says, since she is a woman. And then right at that point where, where the Apostle Peter is offending every one of us, he says, and show her honor. Right? Because she is weaker, you don't despise her. Because she is weaker, you show honor. I mean, this is a scriptural principle, isn't it? Show honor to the weak. Apostle Paul makes that point in his, his work. Right? And so this, this, this weaker is not meant to make you despise your wife. It's, it's meant to make you honor her and, uh, and be gentle and be understanding towards your wife. Okay? So she is a woman. God made you the man to protect, to provide, to love, to work, and why will you treat your wife like a man? See, that's when marriages go bad, is when the man treats his wife like a man, as if she were the stronger vessel, and he just begins heaping responsibility on her so that he can go fishing, right? so that he can check out, so that he doesn't have to bear the weight that he just doesn't like to bear at all. And that's when he starts treating the wife like a man. Here's all this responsibility, you take care of it. And in the end, he is not leading his household as God would have him do. And he is burdening his wife in a way that she was not meant to be burdened. She was not meant to carry that kind of burden. It's funny how the feminists only respect the masculine, right? Feminists want to make women men. They only respect the masculine. They, they despise this verse, and so what they would have us do is make everybody men, everybody equal, everybody um, unified and uh, egalitarian in that sense. And the feminist does not understand this. This is, the, this is the antidote to feminism is to honor the weaker vessel. And already, you know, I can hear them tearing their hair out as I say that. 
right? Feminism destroys femininity and only has space for the masculine and for that strength. And, and then don't forget, she is a fellow heir. She is a fellow heir of the grace of life. She gets the inheritance too. She gets no more than you get. She, she is beloved of the Lord. She has an inheritance. She will be given that. And in that sense, she is your equal. She is equally dignified. And if you don't live this way, what, what happens? Your prayers will not, your prayers will be hindered. Your prayers will be hindered. In other words, everything you ask of God and everything you're depending on God for, he will say, I can't hear you. When you throw off these, these, these roles, but roles is not the right word, when we don't live according to the sex that God has made us, male and female. She's a fellow heir. Your prayers will be hindered like the ones you're praying, asking God to give you a wife that is submissive and feminine. God won't hear those prayers if you're not honoring her as the weaker vessel. So don't do as Adam did, right? Treating Eve as the stronger vessel. That's what Adam did. Remember when Satan is afflicting his wife, Adam is silently standing by. Genesis 3.16. She quickly turns to her husband who is with her and gives to him to eat of the tree. And so it appears that Adam was there treating his wife like the stronger vessel, letting her do battle with the evil one. And uh, so he failed in this. So all of that to, to talk a little bit about structure, to little, a little bit about duty, but now I want to uh, hone in on, on affection for your wife, affection for your wife. Does she know you love her, men? Does she know you love her? Um, we have a whole book in the Bible about the affection between lovers, right? Song of Solomon. And that, you know, people have allegorically read that as, a, as the love between Christ and his church. That's fine. One way or the other, it still makes the same point, that there is deep affection between Christ and his church, as there should be between the husband and the wife, if we're properly reflecting um, Christ and the church, which is the model for marriage. But does your wife know you love her, that you, uh, as I would put it, are crazy about her? Are you, does she know that? I want to give you, or, well, here's the difficulty. Right, here's the nub of the issue, is as men, we kind of don't want to give ourselves to either leading our wives or being affectionate with our wives. We kind of, there's just a safe zone where we're, we're, we don't have to lead and we don't have to be overly affectionate. But we have to be both willing to lead and willing to love, to, to sing our wives' praises, to say Shaw, to show her our dependence upon her, right? And so I want to give you some examples from history. Luther, Calvin, and Jonathan Edwards, all people we think of as great affectionate husbands. <laughs> huh. 
Luther, Calvin, and Edwards. What, what cherry-picking there. Um, Luther loved his wife, um, Katerina. They were, it was an arranged marriage. I mean, things were crazy at that time of the Reformation. The, the, the nuns were coming out of the convents, the priests were giving up their priestly calling, and they were marrying. And so Luther and Katerina were, were, um, were coupled and married. And um, Luther, Luther called his wife many things, many terms of endearment. One, one though, was the boss of Zulsdorf, and he called her Lord, right, in a, in a sort of, um, you know, tongue-in-cheek way. But, I mean, she was... She was resourceful, she was competent, she was a Proverbs 31 woman, right? And so she directed that household. And that's why he, you know, that, that uh, go back to the sermon I preached on oikodespotane, that the wife has authority over her home. And these women, uh, and this woman, Katerina, um, certainly had that. She often rebuked her husband. Right? She rebuked him as an Abigail to correct him when he was being, and as he could be often, extreme. Right? She would moderate him. And he also called her the morning star of Wittenberg because she got up before anybody else did. She was up early in the morning and she was doing her work. She also called her beloved, my true love, and my sweetheart, Kate. There was a true love that they had. Um, Luther said, there is no more lovely, friendly, and charming relationship, communion, or company than a good marriage. No better companionship, no better company than a good marriage, right? And, and Luther liked to go hang out with his buds at the, at the tavern, but he said, nah, there's something better than that. There's something better than that, and that's, that's the company I have with my wife. Calvin, John Calvin married a woman named, uh, what's her name, um, Idolette. She was a widow and um, had children from her first marriage. And so when, when Calvin was exiled from, from Geneva, he went up to Strasbourg and this uh, this lady's husband was, um, was a fixture in the church up there. He died, and they determined to marry. And here's what Calvin writes in 1549 when his wife died. Although the death of my wife has been exceedingly painful to me, yet I subdue my grief as well as I can. Friends also are earnest in their duty to me. It may be wished, indeed, that they would profit me in themselves more Yet one can scarcely say how much I am supported by their attentions. But you know well enough how tender or rather soft my mind is. Thanks, Calvin. Hadn't noticed that. Had not a powerful self-control therefore been vouchsafed to me, I could not have borne up so long. And truly mine is no common source of grief. I have been bereaved of the best companion of my life. Of one who, had it been so ordered would not only have been the willing share of my indigence, but even of my death. 
During her life, she was the faithful helper of my ministry. From her, I never experienced the slightest hindrance. She was never troublesome to me throughout the entire course of her illness. She was more anxious about her children than about herself. As I feared these private cares might annoy her to no purpose, I took occasion on the third day before her death to mention that I would not fail in discharging my duty to her children. Right? These are, these are not just his children, but her children. Right? Taking up the matter immediately, she said, I have already committed them to God. And when I said that that was not to prevent me from caring for them, she, she replied, I know you will not neglect what you know has been committed to God. Lately also, when a certain woman insisted that she should talk with me regarding these matters, I, for the first time, heard her give the following brief answer. Assuredly, the principal thing is that they live a pious and holy life. My husband is not to be urged, listen to this, my husband is not to be urged to instruct them in religious knowledge and in the fear of God. If they be pious, I am sure he will get, gladly be a father to them. But if not, they do not deserve that I should ask anything on their behalf. This nobleness of mind will weigh, this is back to Calvin, this nobleness of mind will weigh more with me than a hundred recommendations. Many thanks for your friendly consolations. Adieu, most excellent and honest brother. May the Lord Jesus Watch over and direct yourself and your wife. Present my best wishes to her and to the brethren. And so there's, again, another, uh, this, this dependence, this affection, this wonderful uh, affection that he had for his wife. And then this morning we went through Edwards and Sarah and Jonathan, who, who seemed to have just a wonderful affection for one another. On his deathbed, Jonathan said, It seems to me to be the will of God that I must shortly leave you. Therefore, give my kindest love to my dear wife and tell her that the uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. So they had deep affection for one another. So let me bring this together. While... While it's true, men, that we have difficulty leading competent, intelligent, lovely wives, right? And, we, and we're exhorted to by the Lord. While that is true, we must also remember to cherish our wives as a gift from God, right? It is not your constant duty to be barking orders, you must be affectionate. Each of us will struggle in different ways. Some men, right, will marry a woman so as to effectively have a mom. That's a point that Renton's been bringing out. Some men marry a woman so that they have a mom, and so they, will, they don't have to lead. Mom's going to do everything for them. Some men will marry a woman so as to effectively have a wench, a servant, a servant. And so they will not love them or honor them as a woman. And so our calling as men is to lead and to love, to be her Lord and to call her Lord, right? Just as Luther did in his way. To be her Lord and to call, and to call her Lord. 
to say no and to say yes, to be hard and to be soft, to, to, um, to, to work off her hard edges and also to enjoy her soft edges, if you get my drift, right? So be, men, you, you, can, be, you can be idiots in, in, in two directions. We, I include myself in there, I am an idiot, I admit it, right? You can be an idiot in, in several directions, um, but be an affectionate man so that it is easy for her to follow your lead. When you're affectionate with her, you make it easy for her to take correction. That's always the case in every situation. A boss who never praises those who works for him just blows up the situation every time he's negative, right? But if he's been affirming and if he's encouraged, then at that point he may actually have them listen to him when he gives some constructive criticism. So be affectionate. What does that mean? It means to praise your wife. It means to affirm her. It means to stare at her. It means to touch her. It means to be romantic. It means to be affectionate. It means to stop being an engineer and be a poet right it means to it means to um, it means to love her it just means to love her men we have to be affectionate with our wives they they work so hard they work um, unbelievably hard they are fellow heirs of Christ they are a precious gift, and a little bit of affection, brothers, would go a long way. Luther said, let the wife make the husband glad to come home, and let him make her sorry to see him leave. Right? That's the way it should be. There should be such affection. Honestly, as I get older and, and I have to be away from my wife, it just makes me sick. I am, I am weak when it comes to being away from my wife. And she just was just gone for five days. And I'm like, ugh. I mean, it's, just, it's impossible. It's impossible. And I, next week I have to travel uh, for four days. And the thing I'm not looking forward to is not being uh, with my wife. And then here's another thing. Luther said this, and this is really my point. Power without love is reckless and abusive. That's the first half of his equation. Power without love is reckless and abusive. Power, right? If your marriage is just about power, then it's going to be abusive. You're just going to command, you're going to direct, you're going to bark, you're going to insist. And some of us men, we tend in that direction. And then he says this, and love without power, love without power, that's not even like a concept that we think about much. We think love is by necessity without power. It's without authority, right? But love without power is sentimental and anemic, right? It's superficial. Love without this authority, love without the husband being the head of the home, that, that love, if you just want rom just a purely romantic love, 
right? That's a mountaintop experience love. It's not the love of the course of 40, 50, 60, 70 years. Well, that, he says, is sentimental and anemic. <laughs> In other words, it will fade as soon as your wife's wife gets stretch marks. It will fade as soon as your wife is no longer, no longer able to infatuate you. That's why it's, it's superficial, right? But love with authority, love with power, love with these two things together is lasting. Um, sentimental love is self-indulgent, right? Instead of fruitful, fruitful, productive love, right? Which is, has cost and has difficulties, but definitely must have the order that God has placed on marriage to make it sustain. And so the goal is to lead with love, um, to love and lead not merely to rule without heart or love without thought and without direction. It's both of those things. But gentlemen, you need to say yes to your wives. You need to say yes, you need to affirm her, you need to tell her that she has the most beautiful hair in all the world, you need to tell her that she's gorgeous, you need to make time for her, you need to um, embarrass her like that. And she may not like affection, so what? So what? God, God had the first man sing a poem to Eve, right? So get to it. She may, she may not like that. She may, but likely she doesn't like you bossing her around either, which is part of what you have to do. So I hope you hear what I'm saying here. Renton has been trying to get us to have the courage to say no to our wives, and I'm telling you to have the courage to say yes to your wives, to affirm, to build up, to make your wives feel like they are the apple of your eye, okay? And we have examples of that in history. We have the command of Scripture and um, get to it, okay? Get to it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given marriage as a gift to your people. We are in awe of the fact that it, it is a reflection of Christ in the church. And Father, we know that Christ has set us as the apple of his eye. That he loves us with an eternal love, with deep, deep affection. And Father, I pray that that affection would, would be a part of our marriages that husbands would truly love their wives and wives would truly respect their husbands. And Father, I pray for, for those who find this exhortation in either direction, the no's and the yes's difficult, I pray that you would work in those marriages, that you would increase their courage, you increase their love, Father, and that we would be conformed to your will in this that our marriages would reflect the glory that is between Christ and the church. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.